In Revelation, in chapter 9, we see that there's some apocalyptic things going on. There's seals being broken. There's judgment. There's all kinds of things taking place. And we get to Revelation chapter 9, verse 6, which has to be a little bit worse than trying to teach Job 3. And in Revelation chapter 9 and verse 6, it says this. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. As I was looking at this verse, one pastor called this verse the extremity of anguish. The extremity of of anguish. There's four things that I want to observe about this verse. Then I want to tell you a story about a saint um, that has passed on and that you've heard about once today already, but I thought I would go over it a second time. And then also some applications that we can learn from his life and his friend's life. So first of all, four observations about the the verse. Um, Death is regarded as one of the greatest terrors in life. Second of all, Death is the very opposite of what we were created for. Third of all, there must be something that is more terrible, more terrifying than death. And fourth of all, there must be only one means of escape. And so looking at those four observations about Revelation chapter 9, verse 6, death is regarded as the greatest evil, the greatest terror. I want you to think about this for a second. Think about maybe... How you feel when you hear there may be a tornado coming through. Now, I don't get that worked up about a tornado. But my youngest, Des, and my wife, they get frightful over tornadoes. When the phone goes off and it makes that noise and it sounds like a spaceship is coming through, they get nervous. And they want to they get anchored down somewhere that they feel like is safe. Why do they feel that way? Because tornadoes. Not only do they wreak havoc, but we can rebuild, but they cause death. Think about other natural disasters, earthquakes, um, wildfires, whatever it may be. The greatest terror in those natural disasters is that death comes from those. Think about animals. Think about these wonderful beasts that we see, lions and tigers and bears. And I just made everybody think, oh my, I'm sorry. Think how majestic and how beautiful they are. But we wouldn't go near them with a 10-foot pole because they can kill you. Because we're terrified of death. Think about how terrible the word cancer may sound. And yet, if death wasn't a consequence, it wouldn't mean anything. So all of these things, all the things that we fear, we fear them ultimately because death is at the end of them and we want to avoid death. People spend their life's fortune to get better, to avoid death. And then people spend hours every day to stay healthy so that they won't fall in a condition that leads to death. And death is a sentence that we all live under because of sin. God said to Adam and Eve, in the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die. Because of sin, we all have an appointment with death. It is appointed And the man wants to die, and then the judgment. So, death is regarded as the greatest terror. But there must be something that's worse. 
Second point, there's some, death is the very opposite of what we were created for. We were created in the image of God. We were created not to die, but we were created to live to his glory, right? We were created to live to the glory of God, to live upward and to live outward. And when I say we were created to live upward, we were created to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and spirit, everything that we are. And we were created to live outward. When I say live outward, what I mean is we were created to live, uh, love others more than we love ourselves. That's what we were created for. And yet, because of sin, because of our own departing away from God, we see here in this text that people are in such anguish that they're bent on self-destruction and they're so self-absorbed that they're seeking death. How can it be? That the one part of creation that was kissed with the very likeness of God seeks its own self-destruction. Where else in creation do you see anything that was created that seeks its own self-destruction? It's not there. There isn't one. So there must be something that's more terrifying. There must be something that's more fearful than death. So that's the third observation about the text. In James 1, verse 15, we read this, and this is part of the verse. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Sin, robed in all of its beauty, in all of its delights, is worse than death. It dulls the senses, senses, it hardens the heart, it enslaves us. It makes the chasm even seem even greater between us and God. And deep inside of every human, there's a spark of conscience that cries out that says that there will be judgment from a holy God. And that God is a just God, and he will demand that the penalty is paid. So death is preferred to this broken person rather than to be mastered by this sin. It has left the world awful around us in a broken state and that death is preferred it's at a point where brokenness is so severe that the only option preferable is to end everything abruptly ecclesiastes 12 8 after reflecting over all of the aspects of life the preacher says vanity of vanity says the preacher all is vanity so there must be only one escape the fourth observation christ the good news the gospel message is the only means of escape. You know, so often we hear that the Christians have it wrong. So we know that the Christians have it right here. There's only one means of escape when we observe this verse, and that is the message of the gospel. The one who has believed on the name of Christ has already conquered death. For true everlasting life has been granted to him, and he has passed from being a child of darkness to a child of light, a child of the king. Christ delivers from death. He rules over death and he conquers death. We read in John eleven forty three, Christ came to the grave of Lazarus. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips, his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. And that's what Christ proclaims when he calls to each one of us. We see in 1 Corinthians 15, 50, Paul writes, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, 
nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So a story of application. This morning, we heard about a great 18th century poet named William Cooper. Now, William Cooper, was, he was well known in his day. Benjamin Franklin even read his poetry and gave him great reviews. And so he was a man that was well-known, and yet he lived the life of a recluse, and like we heard about this morning, who battled depression and had difficult times his entire life, his entire 69-year journey on this earth. It seemed like this man could find no rays of sunshine. And so you heard this morning about how he grew up, and I'm not going to rehash what, what you already heard, so hopefully you were listening. It was at the end of the sermon. But the, he, 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 he had a very... Say that again. There, yes, there you go. So he grew up, and at age 21, he, he attempted to kill himself three times. It, within a 24-hour period, he fell, went into a hospital. It was there that he did uh, receive salvation. He was converted. He stayed there for 12 months. And then he, he moved away into a village that was kind of out of the way. And he moved in with a family. He couldn't work. His mental state was such that he couldn't work. He could write poetry. He moved away into this village, and he lived with a family. This is my favorite last name that I've ever learned. He lived with the Unwins. That is so close to Onions, but the Unwins. He, he moved in with them, and shortly after he moved in with the Unwins, Mr. Unwin died in a horse accident. And so there was a pastor in a village about 20 miles away who heard about the misfortunes of this family, and this pastor came to the house and he started to minister to Mr. Unwin's family and to William Cooper. And this pastor was none other than John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace, who also lost his mother when he was at the age of six. And so he became a very important part of William Cooper's life. And he also, uh, more than just a pastor, he became his friend. Cooper said of Newton, a sincere or more affectionate friend no man ever had. Cooper would continue to battle severe depression. Many hours were spent by others to keep a watchful, watchful eye over him, to protect him from himself, because he would also continue to attempt to commit suicide throughout his lifetime a few times. John Newton actually canceled one of his vacations and stayed with Newton for some time just to watch over him. But Newton wasn't satisfied with just going and seeing and visiting and, and looking in on William Cooper. But instead, he wanted to draw him into ministering to the body of Christ. He saw that Cooper had a melancholy bent, melancholy bent, if I can say that, and was a reclusive person. So when John Newton would go and make visitation, when he would go and visit the saints, he would go and he would pick up William Cooper to walk with him. And they would walk from house to house, 
and they would talk about the great truths of God. And he would encourage William Cooper. He would also challenge Cooper, who again was, was a great poet and had many poems beside what we read inside the hymnal of the songs. And um, he would encourage him and challenge him to, to write music. And he actually said, hey, let's get together and let's write a hymn book for our church congregation and we'll sing the songs that we've written together. And so Newton would shepherd Cooper for his lifetime. Cooper wrote to Newton about one of his visits. I found those comforts in your visit, which have formerly sweetened all our interviews in part restored. I knew you, knew you for the same shepherd who was sent to lead me out of the wilderness into the pasture where the chief shepherd feeds his flocks and felt my sentiments of affectionate friendship for you the same as ever. But one thing was still wanting, and that the crown of all. I shall find it in God's time if it be not lost forever. So during this life that Cooper lived, he had a good friend in John Newton. And even though the end of his life was not happy, his last words were, were still miserable. One of the last things he said to a doctor before he says his last words is, I feel unutterable despair. I can't imagine. Perhaps we can hear Newton's influence on Cooper to see how behind a frowning providence there's a smiling face or to plunge into a fountain that's filled with blood. You heard those songs this morning. We can learn, we can apply three lessons from the story of William Cooper and John Newton. First of all, we can learn from the life of Cooper that in our darkest hours of self-loathing and despair, to look upward and outward. Not to look inward, but to look upward to a God who we need to love with all our heart, mind, soul, and spirit. And to look outward and to love others more than we love ourselves. To break away. We need to break away from self-absorption. We need to see what great sacrifice has been made on our behalf by Jesus, the perfect righteous one who was forsaken. We need to learn to distrust despair, to not give in to it. All of us go through this. All of us go through despair. I've been accused of being the most optimistic person in the world. And even I go through despair. And I know, I know when things feel really good, that I need to take some truth, gospel truth, and put it in the bank. Whether it's words that that I'm memorizing in scripture, or words from a great hymn, and I need to saturate my mind with that, so that when I do go through a melancholy season, however so brief or little brief, or whether you see it or not, that I can take that, I can take that deposit, and that I can, I can feed my soul with that and not give in to despair. We all need that. But we need to look upward and we need to look outward and we need to distrust despair and not give in, give in to it. So it's while we're, we have light, it's while we have those seasons of joy, those seasons of great hope, that we need to cultivate a sense of dependency on God's word and his providence and not the lies that we tell ourselves. We can learn, secondly... From the life of John Newton. I look at the words that Cooper wrote about John Newton. And I think, wow, what a friend. If that was the one friend that John Newton was, was, was to Cooper. What a friend. We need to be like John Newton and imitate that. To seek out those among us who need to be drawn out of despair. And not encouraging them with earthly means. Or with any personal worth. Rather... We need to be pointing them to the worthiness of Christ and the gospel that makes us the object 
of the most daring rescue ever in history. And that is the gospel message. To have a friend that would be faithful through endless complaints and bitterness. Can you think of, I had to reflect and think, okay, how do I act when I'm around friends who are bitter and they're in a dark hour and they're complaining? Do I look for a quick escape? Because I think the most natural thing is to look for a quick escape. But not only that, to be able to hear them and minister to their soul, but then to search out their usefulness for God's kingdom. So how much time do you spend cultivating the usefulness of of a person in God's kingdom and those that are around you? How quick are you to listen to someone's brooding despair? Are you dismissive? Do you look to walk away? Or do you have the loving patience, like what was prayed for earlier, to walk with someone, a wounded soul, to the valley of the shadow of death? Are we about that? And it's not that I really appreciated the... um, the British reference. But I think it's not that we're just not transparent enough. But I also think the other side of the equation is we don't dig enough. We don't ask enough questions. Because in our mind, there's a line right here we're not supposed to cross. And in reality, the line's somewhere over here, and we never get close to it. Does that make sense? So we need to dig. We need to ask people. We need to get into their lives. That's what we owe one another. That's what Christian love is. We don't dig enough. Finally, and I think this is the most important point of application. And I know, I know that as Newton and Cooper walked from house to house, that one of the things that was rehearsed between these two friends was the gospel message. We need to be disciplined in rehearsing the gospel message to ourselves on a daily basis. And that message, however, may be brief. 60 seconds or five minutes. Do you spend time rehearsing the gospel message to yourself, first of all? Because our own hearts are not trustworthy. So we must proclaim the power and sufficiency of the blood of Christ to ourselves and then to our spouses and to our children and to our friends and to our brothers and sisters in our church body. Do we rehearse the gospel? We're all born under the curse of sin and death. We all have sought to be our own God. Yet despite our own self, God has made his great mercy and his great grace known in the person of Christ. That we could be children of God, children of the king, rather than a child of the darkness. So you can't convince someone. You cannot convince someone who is in utter despair that sees themselves as a reprobate. You can't convince them of these great truths. But. If you will continue and be faithful to be benevolent with these great gospel truths, it may be that the shackles may fall off, that God may awaken the spirit of adoption in that loved one you're talking to. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that even in verses like Revelations 9, 6 or in Job 3, that we can find great hope that our lips can say, that we have salvation in Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that we would continually proclaim this in our homes, with one another, in our jobs. Father, we pray that at UBC, you would raise up John Newtons among us to minister to the broken. Lord, that no soul would be lost. Lord, that our eyes would be watchful. And Lord, that we would be compassionate to those that are around us. 
Father, we pray that as a church family, we would be a light on a hill in a lost and dying and broken world. Father, that we truly would be the salt of the earth. And we pray all these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen.